podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. Before we get to episode 100 of Perpetual Chess, unbelievable 100 episodes, I have an exciting announcement. So you guys might have heard my interview with U.S. Chess National Master and noted chess book seller and adult improver Fred Wilson, where he mentioned that he used to have a chess interview show. Well, I'm happy to announce that we will be sharing the archive of this interview with my Patreon and PayPal supporters. So anyone who donates $3.50 a month or more, $3.50, not very much, will over time be able to hear the entire archive of Fred's old interviews. So thanks to Fred for working with me on this deal. And here are some of the people that you'll be able to hear. Some of them familiar to Perpetual Chess listeners. Some of them have not been on this show. There's GM Hikaru Nakamura, esteemed trainer GM Gregory Kaidanov, GM Maurice Ashley, Joel Benjamin, Bruce Pandolfini, Greg and Jen Shahadi, all these old interviews from 10 to 15 years ago on Fred's old show. You also even get to hear from some chess dignitaries who are no longer with us, like Grandmaster Arthur Bisguire, I am Victor Frias, lots more. So I'm excited about this project because it's a way to give back to those who've supported me. I've said on the Patreon page before that the more I get in donations, the more I'm able to put into the show and the more I'm able to give back. And this is just the first chance I've had that I felt like I could do something to offer more to those who support me. So nothing is changing about Perpetual Chess itself. This is just an added perk for those who support me, who support the show. The plan is there's about 100 archived interviews in total, and we're planning to roll them out two per week over roughly 50 weeks. The interviews are unedited, so they kind of sound like you're listening on a radio or something. The audio quality is not awful, but it's not amazing either. And I'm not going to be able to do much editing. So you you really get a sense of what it would have been like to listen when it happened 15 years ago, 12 years ago, whatever it was. On the one hand, that feels like a long time ago. On the other hand, it doesn't to me. But you get to hear these guests talk about their lives and careers as we do on Perpetual Chess and also hear them reflect on things like different world championships that were went on at that time. And Fred does book reviews of books that came out during that period, chess books, of course. So they're fun to listen to. So if you're interested and you were on the fence about donating to the show, maybe this will give you the little extra push. If you don't care, don't worry. This doesn't affect Perpetual Chess itself at all. We're still going strong. We're still coming out every week. There's lots more I I hope to do over time to make it better Uh, with continued financial support. I can do stuff like travel to interview guests. I can do stuff like provide transcripts and timestamps of shows. I would love to do all that stuff. So again, the more more I get, the more I'm able to put in. But I also, of course, just want to express my gratitude to people who support the show. I mean, it's been 100 episodes, and this is basically a, a dream job for me, a dream side job. I mean, I love to talk chess, and I love to hear people's stories. So to make a little bit of money to do this is a wonderful thing, and I want to thank you all for your support. So sit back and enjoy this interview. It is with Karsten Hensel. Speaking of chess history, he's lived it over the past few decades. So I think it's quite interesting. And the last thing I wanted to mention is I'll be also releasing a couple of these interviews on the Perpetual Chess feed of of Fred Wilson's old interviews. So you can listen in a couple of weeks, check for that, and you can evaluate and see if you like it or just ignore it if you feel like it's not your cup of tea. But at least then it's just free added content. So check it out and enjoy. And that is enough babbling by me. So please uh, enjoy this episode and I will catch you guys soon. 
Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We've got another guest that I am super excited for. I feel like I've been saying that every week lately, but it's true. And this one comes at chess from a different angle. He is uh, a manager of Peter Leco and Vladimir Kramnik in the past, two names that our listeners will probably know well. He's also been a tournament organizer, and he is releasing a book imminently uh, called Vladimir Kramnik, The Inside Story of a Chess Genius. It's been out in German, and now Quality Chess is releasing it in English, and I am really excited. I read an excerpt, and I'm really excited to read the whole thing. So, Karsten Hensel, thank you for joining us here on Perpetual Chess. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ben. So, so I was um, really excited to get to know more about Vladimir Kramnik's background through your book and through that a little bit about your background. But why don't you begin by telling our listeners how you got to know GM Kramnik and how you eventually got to become his manager? Yeah, it, it, it all started um, somewhere in 92. Uh, Vlad was playing um, in the Dortmund chess days. There was a very, very big open. He was uh, here the very first time. He was 17 years old, so very young, talented, but not really known uh, to, the, uh, to the big chess world. And then he won that uh, open tournament. Uh, ahead of 541 participants, yeah, and I think 100 title holders were participating, and uh, this was, of course, a very b- big breakthrough uh, in in 92. And uh, uh, even Gary was very excited. Gary Kasparov, who won the main tournament at that time, and yeah, and from that uh, from from that moment on, of course, everybody was uh, focusing a bit more on. This um, young guy, Vladimir uh, Kramnik, from Russia, and um, um, uh, uh, including me, of course, yeah. Yes, and that that was around the time that he made his Olympiad debut as well, correct? Yes, yes, it's so it's correct. Okay, uh, let's say uh, all all this is, of course, um, all this is this uh, written in the book. It's a, it's a story uh, what was going on in in the nineties and. Um, uh, I, I was trying, uh, in, in let's say, in, in accordance with my possibilities, to go as deep as possible into the content, but not too deep, because uh, I was. Um, uh, my main goal was to combine the story of Vladimir Kramnik uh, with the recent uh, chess history. Yeah, let's say, um, uh, considering the last uh, 40 to 50 years in chess. And to combine this history with the story of Vladimir Kramnik, which uh, I, I think is very, very important. Yes, of course, being that he's a living legend. And uh, if you tell the story of the history of chess over the past 30 years, his name will come up throughout the story. Uh, could you tell? So I know the story a little bit about how Kramnik made his way onto um the first Russian Olympiad team that he appeared on. Yes, uh, yes. But some of our listeners may not be as familiar, and I know you do touch on it in yeah. your book. So could you tell that story? Yeah, of, of course I of, of course I can tell. He was coming from Dortmund, and okay, uh, Gary Kasparov and others, uh, like the national coach uh, Yuri Razuvayev at that time, 
they were really, um, uh, really very excited, and uh, they wanted uh, to get to to include him in the um, team for the Manila Olympiad at at that time. Uh, but okay, there was a big opposition because. Uh, let's say at, uh, at that time we had some 40 grandmasters playing in Russia and um, Kramnik of course was not a grandmaster with 17 years he had no title he was not even an international master at that time and uh, okay and everything um, uh, was of course a bit uh, confused because uh, the old guys um, didn't want to see him already yeah? and uh, Okay, but uh, they um, they forced this uh, the mighty Kasparov and others, and uh, by the end of the day, he of course had a fantastic result, and I think he got both titles, the international grandmaster, uh, the international master and grandmaster title, at the same time from the world organization FIDE, um, parallel to the Olympiad in in Manila, and okay, a, a big career started, let's say then. Uh, from the year ninety two on yeah uh, up up to uh, up to these days yeah and obviously it must have been an incredible boost to Kramnik's confidence to have none other than Kasparov vouching for him and saying no you have to put this lower rated relatively unknown guy ahead of all these uh titled Russian stalwarts and then to go and deliver really, on yeah. fourth board yeah. is is the stuff of legends so you mentioned that you first encountered him at this tournament what was your uh initial introduction on a personal level? Yeah, okay. I, I, his name I heard first in 92. We were in Reggio Emilia. This is a, a, um, a little town in Italy, and there was a, a quite a, a big tournament, and Kasparov was playing and some other big guys. Arnand won it in 91 at that time, and we were meeting in the breakfast room uh, Bodvinik, uh, Mikhail Bodvinik, and he was speaking about Russian chess, about his chess school, and he mentioned that uh, Vladimir Kramnik was the uh, biggest talent in his school. And at that time, the tournament director of Dortmund, uh, he made some notes and uh, he told the Russians that he really wanted uh, to have this guy then playing in Dortmund. And this was the very first. Um, but okay, I forgot him immediately because, you know, so many names, so many chess players. I was a spokesman uh, for this event. And okay, then he was uh, invited and had this success. And thereafter, um, um, he's played the main tournament, the super tournament, in 93, and we were uh, speaking a little bit, and it developed through the course of the 90s, so I, I, I got to know him better, yeah. Okay, and did you, have an, you, did you have experience as a manager at this time? Yeah, well, I was, uh, of course, I was um, involved in, in, in event organization, in sports management in general, but I was never active uh, as a personal manager in, in chess. I, I was more coming from uh, boxing, from table tennis, ice hockey a little bit, also uh, uh, German football. Uh, I was involved mainly in event organization in these fields, uh, but not, uh, um, uh, but not uh, establishing a personal management. And I, I was, I had no, um, uh, I, I was not intending to do so. And how did you initially become interested in chess? Oh, okay. This this already happened uh, in the in the seventies, in the beginning of the seventies. It had, of course, something to do with the Fischer Speskim match. And uh, okay, I was uh, getting some news in in the 
in the in 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 the German TV for the very first time. They presented chess on TV, and then I okay I I learned a bit the rules. I I played as an amateur just for fun, like a hobby player. And of course, still I'm not a club player. I'm, I'm, I might have some 1,600 to 1,800 elo, uh, but I'm not really a, a club player. So I just—it uh, um, was just always a hobby for me. Uh, and uh, in, uh, during the course of the 90s, when I was managing the Dortmund, uh, uh, the Dortmund event, uh, and trying to um, to establish a real professional tournament here in Germany. Uh, of course, I was coming closer to the big guys. Yeah, um, just for instance, when I was negotiating all these contracts, and uh, which I did also for the for the city hall uh, on behalf of the city hall, and so I I, um, I, I knew them better step by step, and uh, it started all uh, a bit with Leko because Leko was. Uh, uh, was like a family member in, from '92 on. In, yeah, he, he needed some help from time to time, and uh, he was uh, in my house, and uh, he was part of my family. And um, it, I, I remember it was '98 when he was really struggling and had some trouble, so there was no way for him. He did not see um, um, uh, a way how to how to proceed uh, this kind of professional chess. Uh, because you have to know if you are top ten player, you, uh, okay, it's easy. But if you are not, or if you want to to uh, to to go there, it's it's a very big thing, yeah. And okay, you need money, you need sponsors, you need to invest in your training, in your in your uh, in in your uh, uh, partner seconds or whatever. So um, uh, so I, I started with him in '98, and okay, we were quite successful. And of course, parallel to this, uh, Vladimir um, uh, was uh, speaking very often to me. And um, um, of course, I, I knew some people uh, uh, which were good friends of mine and of Vladimir parallel, yeah, which were living in Moscow. And so it was coming closer and closer. And one day he was asking me to do something for him. In the first, in first place, I did not uh, do it for, um, let's say, on, on a professional basis, just as a friend. And okay, uh, then he became world champion, and uh, uh, the situation were completely different. Then. Okay, well, there's a lot from there that I'd like to get a few more details on, if you don't mind. Num- number one, so you mentioned you told this story of Peter Leco feeling like he's struggling in '98 and having some trouble coming up with the finances in order to uh, fund fund um, his his pursuit of becoming or ascending the ladder of becoming even more elite. So when he came to you and you tried to help him, what sort of concrete steps would you recommend to someone in that situation? Uh, first of all, of course, it is most important uh, uh, to find some backing, some sponsors yeah, to really make you independent um, uh, from anything else. Yeah, he was, I, I, I think he was, um, with 14, he was the youngest grandmaster at that time. And uh, okay, he had some income by playing uh, summer tennis exhibitions. Uh, but for very little money, he was like a circus horse, yeah. So, hmm. and um, uh, he could not really develop his chess uh, to uh, up to his real potential. And of, uh, and also, it is difficult. Just for instance, if you understand, 
uh, that you work with people which are not uh, perfect uh, for you. Uh, you have to change them possibly. Uh, maybe you have to m work with more than one or two or three people if you want uh, to realize your potential. And uh, this is professional chess and these guys are grandmasters and then you, 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 you have to invest. And okay, this goes parallel to professional sponsorships, to, uh, let's say, communication, professional communication business. Um, you have to organize yourself a little bit. And I think nowadays, uh, if I see these guys which uh, are starting the World Championship uh, tomorrow, uh, Carlson and Ken Carriana, they, they, they had it uh, almost from the beginning. Uh, but at that time, in the end of the 90s, this was quite different. Yeah, So I established something and... Uh, uh, we found um, a, a big German en energy company, uh, which are even acting on a on a on, on a European basis. Uh, so very big company, and uh, I uh, I was successful in in negotiating a five years contract for Leco. It started in '98, and then we really had <clears throat> had some development from that moment on. That's great. I mean, it's it's wonderful that you're able to find someone, and obviously those efforts paid off. Now, I'm just curious. So, once you once you're in touch with Peter Leco and you're trying to help him, how do you reach out? I mean, I'm sure you have a network, but do you just call companies or do you reach out to people you know? And was this um was this agreement that you came to was it like a public endorsement or more was it more like private support? No, of course there was a network, but okay, I knew sponsors from from other sports. I was uh, organizing world championships uh, in in ice hockey, in boxing, and I think even in in ice skating. And I knew this uh, this company and their representatives already, and so I was coming into in, in, into contact. And okay, the, the most of the people are not very um, are very competent, even not in the marketing. Uh, departments of such companies when it comes to chess yeah and when they when they heard of what kind of amount i was asking for they were quite surprised they thought it was much expensive much more expensive yeah? uh, at that time i we were talking let's say about one hundred thousand dollars a year and they said what one hundred thousand dollars this is not too much what do we get for for yeah. this money and um, okay and by the end of the day i can tell you i'm with them and and Lico, we had um, uh, really a lot of very successful events in Germany, in, in, in Hungary, in Budapest, etc., etc. Just for instance, they were organizing this match against Khalifman uh, Alexander when he, when he was becoming FIDE World Champion uh, in, uh, in 2000, or uh, when was it, 2000 or 1999 in, in Las Vegas, yeah? And uh, well, they were organizing the match against Leko, and Leko crushed him with four and a half and one and a half, and it was perfectly organized, and then they saw what is possible. We had, let's say, in a in a in a better show match, which was of course rated for the for the for the list, but it was of course not a world championship match. They had something like three thousand spectators. They had more than one hundred uh, journalists, uh, and um, uh, the internet started already at that time a little bit. They they saw uh, uh, incredible traffic, which was not. Which uh, which we could uh, let's say manage within one week. We we had more than the company in one week in in one year, and so they discovered chess a little bit for themselves. And um, 
and it was quite a start. And from this time on, it was not so difficult for me uh, to uh, to um, yeah, to interest the sponsors uh, to chess anymore. Yeah, because later on, even with Kramnik and again with Leko, uh, there was quite often a necessity to to get sponsorship into the business. Well, that that's great to hear because we've had different uh, boosters of chess on people who rec- who like for example the USCF president or heads of local organizations, and I know that some have had more success than others in terms of uh, attracting corporate sponsorship. Yeah, yeah, this is true. It's always a bit difficult. First of all, you need to be connected, and second, you of course you have to understand how to sell a product. Chess is a product. Uh, it's quite different from ice hockey, just for instance. But okay, it's, a, it's still a product, and you have to you have to uh, to open exactly these doors. Uh, and of course, chess, on on the other hand, is also has a great respect in the society yeah, because of its history and its culture, and you can use all this. But uh, by the end of the day, you have to show the data, yeah, the the media data. The, the, you have to make certain communication possible for the companies involved. And if you are successful, uh, let's say in in two or three on two or three occasions, then it becomes more easier. Uh, nowadays, I, I see a different uh, a different picture. Of course, I understand that Magnus um, is uh, is a very attractive player from the West, from Norway, even to sponsors. Yeah, um, and um, uh, with other players, it is it is not automatically the case. But we should become more independent on this and uh, uh, really to to sell the product chess and professional chess. And uh, I, I, I from my to my taste, I, I think the new FIDE president, um, I'm really not involved in this business anymore, but I, it's, it's a real big hope because what FIDE, uh, what FIDE did, let's say, the last 30 to 40 years uh, uh, was, uh, was a disaster. Yeah? They, yeah. they're running, uh, they are running the business like we did it in table tennis. This is my sport I'm coming from. Uh, we we did this business in the 70s, yeah, and and um, <laughs> for 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 them it was still state of the art nowadays, and so this uh, this change uh, was was really really necessary, and I, I hope for the best that it comes to a good development because chess can may, can cannot do the same as uh, as football here in Europe or let's say ice hockey or, or basketball in 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 in, in the United States, uh, but. Uh, if we own, if if we only get one percent uh, out of this uh, amount for for our professional chess, then we would all be happy, uh, and not only the top ten players or the world champion. Yeah, and it feels like chess is growing generally. There's more interest online. There's a lot of companies, uh, you know, uh, grabbing market share and getting more people interested in chess. But the the final leg is still that uh, that high profile corporate sponsorship. Yes. Yes. This is true. This is true. First of all, you need to, to, uh, to, uh, from my point of view, um, to deliver the right system. Uh, um, in, in my opinion, when in accordance with my experience, the biggest asset what you have is a world championship match. Yeah, this is this has something to do with the history. This is the real big thing. And, um, and then, of course, you have to build uh, the house from there. And um, uh, this uh, this is done nowadays, but maybe you can op- still optimize something in the World Championships, in the Grand Prix series, even to connect 
the big private tournaments, um, yeah, to establish new tournaments in continents and countries where uh, the people like chess, but nothing happens. Yeah. So, and if you have uh, such kind of uh, system, if you establish something very transparent, then of course you have a product and you can sell. Uh, but uh, FIDE by now uh, could not manage it at all. Yeah. And what's your opinion of this sort of raging debate about the intellectual property of broadcasting an event like the World Championship? Like, I know um, yeah. I'm, you probably know to what I'm referring, yes, but, yes, but just for listeners. So FIDE feels like in, in, it, in being the one that organizes the events, it should have the exclusive right to show the moves as they happen. Uh, but companies like Chess.com and Chess24 no, and... Uh, of course, I understand FIDE very well and uh, even the players because... They uh, some and of course, uh, but but the, uh, in in the the highest courts in Moscow and even I, if I remember well in my time in the United States, they were refusing uh, that that there are any uh, any any personal rights on this, or uh, and, and that this is only an information, yeah, like a result. So as long as 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 um, as, as you will not find. Uh, and any uh, um, main court yeah, who who, uh, who decides in a different way, there's simply no chance. There's simply no chance, and uh, uh, you have to you have to find a different approach to all this. Uh, uh, so we we even were not able to establish a business plan. Uh, we were hoping very much that it would that this would be possible one day, because then there would be a completely different market uh, for for the professionals, yeah, not for the chess lovers and for the spectators who who are used to get everything for free. Right. But um, but okay, it would be of course very very important. And once if you uh, you you are used if if you want to to uh, to see a movie over the internet via the internet, okay, you pay some three or four bucks for it, and uh, you won't you won't mind after a, uh, after you did it three or four times. And so you are used to this, and it's not too much uh, to ask for. We did it also in Bonn, 2008. I remember we were organizing the world championship match Kramnik Anand yeah? and uh, Anand was losing uh, this match but uh, despite this it was perfectly organized and we were trying to set up this new system Freudos we had I don't know 16 cameras and uh, you were in the driver's seat as a spectator and you could use every camera you you had uh, I, uh, nine grandmasters uh, as commentators in different languages uh, whatever, yeah, and even animation, whatever we did, and we were really, um, uh, I think, investing some 100,000 uh, euros or, uh, or dollars on, on this system, and, uh, okay, founding a company, and I can tell you, uh, we had in our, in our live broadcasting, for free broadcasting, we had some 1 million people in per game, uh, but uh, making them pay five bucks for this uh, for this kind of service, um, um, this was I think uh, we had some 100 or 120 people which were ready to pay, and uh, okay, so it, um, it it was clear that that people are not ready are not ready if they get the moves on on a different side for free, and this is the case right now, of course, as far as I understand. FIDE was trying hard, and uh, also Argon, yeah, their commercial arm. Um, but, okay, we're not very successful. So all remains the same. 
but okay, the, what what you have to do, of course, is uh, to present the events, to organize the events um, um, in, in the highest level, to attract sponsors, to bring the journalists again to chess. When when I was organizing my last World Championship match, uh, I did it 2008, and before in Brisago 2004, uh, we had in Bonn we had 420 journalists in the event more than 400 and nowadays um, there's a, a bit of tendency that people attend uh, or even the journals tend to sit in their living rooms drinking a cup of tea and uh, following the games uh, in the internet and then of course making reports uh, as if they if they were there uh, in the right. venue but they never were they were never were there and the sponsors look nobody in the press center and uh, this is of course uh, counterbacks from from the negative sides from the from the internet but okay if you if you really uh, if you really organize um, uh, a world championship uh, match or a candidates tournament or even a big qualifier in a very, very uh, professional uh, uh, way, so uh, very high quality, then spectators are coming, journalists are coming, you can organize this. The interest is uh, still there. Yeah, I think the interest is there for sure, and I agree with you. I'm generally not a big defender of FIDE, but I'm sympathetic to, to their plight in this case. I mean, they, they're putting on the product that draws the eyeballs, but unable to draw any revenue besides the people who buy tickets. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, okay, okay. This is a, this is a professional ticketing system, which is which is normal in every sport. When we were when we were staging uh, the event in in Bonn, uh, which is uh, by now uh, known as the best organized world championship match ever. Yeah, and this is not from me. This is not my my quote. These are really uh, said from 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 even from feeder people which were involved at that time. Uh, until nowadays, so um, uh, there was a ticketing system, and we were taking some 40 euros, so 50 50 dollars uh, f- uh, for entrance, and we were sold out every day, every day. And uh, um, so we had all these journalists on top, yeah? so we had many thousand people, uh, uh, thousands of people, which were ready uh, to pay this money for chess. And okay, there was a, a certain. Um, there was a certain, let's say, a venue which which is important. So we had always in mind to combine arts and chess. Yeah, this was our idea. There was a concept behind. When we were uh, when we were organizing a chess event, we were trying uh, to um, to um, to to have a certain message on on this to combine chess with its with its history, with the culture, with the society. Um, and uh, just for instance, in that match, we were in the Art and Exhibition Hall of the Federal Republic of Germany. And of course, you have synergy effects then. Yeah? You can bring target groups together and all these things. And, and there are many, many, many possibilities. Uh, in nowadays, uh, the situation is even better yeah? uh, than, uh, than in, in, in our time when Blatt was uh, world champion. Uh, but okay, you need to have this concept first, and uh, uh, you need to have a professional commercial arm which covers all these uh, fields. Yeah, it's um, 
it's an interesting topic. I mean, it's a thorny issue, but I, I do want to pivot to your book and talk a bit yeah. more about <laughs> yeah. uh, GM Kramnik, of course. Um, so one, one question I had for you was you mentioned in the excerpt I was able to read that you actually, as, as Vlad's manager, sometimes you would be involved in match strategy discussions in his world championship matches. So I was curious how that frames your thinking about sort of about the upcoming match, which will already be underway when people hear this interview. No, I think, I think I was quite clear in the book when it comes to chess, uh, uh, let's say nobody could uh, really interfere, could really interfere. Vladimir made all his decisions concerning chess himself. Uh, I was organizing uh, things which were uh, necessary and which he wanted. I was his manager. But uh, uh, how the preparation uh, would be um, organized in detail, who would be invited in his team or whatever these these decisions he made by he made by himself yeah and we had a very clear uh, we had a very clear um um agreement yeah that he is responsible for everything concerning chess and me was more let's say my business was more to care about communication and the commercial side of course we were speaking a lot uh, during the matches and even before and I have my own opinion on all these things and I express them in my book uh, which are not necessarily the opinions of Vladimir because I also um, I allow myself to criticize uh, from time to time um, uh, even him uh, um, but okay if you write a book you should have this uh, you should have this freedom and he gave me yeah, for example, again, I I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing, but one thing I noticed is you talk about how in Kramnik's younger years, he was a little bit freewheeling and maybe didn't have the the total professional approach to chess. And you, it was yeah, okay. Uh, I, I I'm I'm sure he himself sees it possibly different. We we are not talking about the book because he did not read it yet. Yeah, the English version version is out. Uh, let's say in, in in ten days or something like this, and then he will start to read it. But we were speaking, of course, a little bit. And, of course, he was contributing with the analysis of the most important games and etc., etc. And we are not always uh, of the same opinion. But I express my opinion on him, uh, even in, 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 in this context. And in the 90s, uh, to my taste, um, it, he was, of course, he was absolutely a genius already. Yeah? And, and he could have been a world champion even before 2000, I'm quite sure. Uh, he this this has been possible, but his approach to chess was always a bit different. Um, uh, if you compare it to the uh, with the approach of uh, Fischer or Kasparov, uh, for example, yeah, he was not um, not so. Um, uh, let's say he was not uh, looking for the results in first place. He, he for him chess it was always more a process, uh, uh, an art, uh, yeah, and he. He expressed himself uh, via chess, and necessarily um, a, a good result uh, was was for him uh, not the most important thing, yeah, um, for a time being. And okay, there was uh, there um, he was uh, he was living his life like a bohemian, yeah. He had a lot of fun, uh, and I cannot judge really if if uh, if he if, if it would if he would have done differently if he. If this, but if his approach would have been a different one, 
if he would give everything into his into his chess and into his potential, then there would have been other possibilities already during the course of the 90s. A very good example, uh, to my taste, is this loss to, to, to Shirov. Yeah? And, uh, okay, we were speaking once, I don't know, in the sauna somewhere about this match, and he told me, um, Karsten, I, I, so, I, I was in so bad shape, I made so many, so, so big mistakes, I even have no explanation for this, etc., etc. Uh, and he was trying to find all these reasons. When something was going wrong, uh, he, find, he was trying to find uh, those reasons um, uh, connected to his chest. But uh, um, I, I think he did not consider that if you want to reach the highest goal, where the thin is very, very, where the air is very, very thin, yeah, in this level, uh, that you have to be very professional in other areas as as well. And at that time, during the course of the 90s, he was of course not. Okay, and it's interesting that you do pinpoint that match with Shirov, which Kramnik lost, um, because. It was only a few years later where he sort of turned the corner and really uh, ascended to the highest level. Okay, it was a shock. In my book, I was uh, I was uh, describing him when when he when he uh, when he had the opportunity to play Kasparov directly. Uh, okay, with Shirov, if he would have won against Shirov, he would also <coughs> had this match. But okay, this was this was something different. Yeah, it was it was something different. And, and when when he had Gary in front of him, he was it was it was like a shock. And I I, I, I remember very well. Uh, Linaros always took place in March, and I was coming 2000 in into the breakfast room in Linaros, and I saw him sitting in the breakfast room in the morning, nine 9:30 or 10, having breakfast. Yeah. Um, this this was not Kramnik. Kramnik got up one in the uh, one around noon, yeah, but not nine in the morning, and so he changed already. They, they were negotiating. It, he didn't sign the. He did not even sign the contract, but uh, Anand was hesitating at that time, and uh, so uh, so something was was going on, and he, he stopped uh, smoking when it was clear. I think he signed somewhere. 5th of April or something like this, immediately after Linares, this contract, and you had a different person. You had really a different person who had a fantastic approach. He was in, in, in really in, 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 in the best shape I, I, uh, you, you could imagine, uh, bring himself into this shape, uh, physically, but also mentally, and he was completely focused. And uh, this was really something... Uh, uh, which for me is uh, proof. If, if he would have done this uh, five, six years earlier, he could have been world champion already in uh, 95, 96, 97, yeah? if he would start, uh, have started this uh, in the 90s. Uh, but okay, he's, uh, this also shows something, yeah? uh, to my taste, um, what's, um, concerning his chess po- potential, uh, it is clear that he is among the strongest player of all times, but uh, the question is of if he was always ready to bring his uh, very very best uh, potential to the road. No. Yeah, and it sounds like your your opinion is pretty clear on this matter. Um, one thing I would just say is. It it sounds like it could have been better. He maybe could have uh, reached his potential earlier, but it could have been worse too. I mean, the yes, <laughs> chess, chess history is littered of examples with people who just never reach their yeah. their potential to be yeah. truly elite. Okay, so. if you make if, if you make certain people work hard, uh, 
then of course <coughs> it, it, it has drawbacks as well. This is, uh, I think, also his opinion on this matter. But I have a little different one, and <laughs> I allow myself to express it uh, in the book. Still, yeah, even under the circumstances that he was not so uh, result orientated all the time, uh, he was seven years world champion, winning three big world championship matches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So another question I had for you is I saw you sent me a link to an interview you did with uh, Len- Leonard Utz uh, at one of the Olympiads, I believe, where you talked a little bit about this book after it had been published in, in Germany. And again, the book is called Vladimir Kramnik, The Inside Story of a Chess Genius. Um, and you mentioned that the famous book from London to Alista, uh, you felt there were some things that you didn't feel were portrayed accurately there. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. No, I, I don't want to go in, into details. There was just, let's say, some opinions were ex- expressed from one of the authors. It was not Barev. Barev did a good job from what I can see uh, concerning concerning a chess and the analysis of the games. But okay, um, when we are talking about Toilet Gate and its scandal, um, uh, the other author he was expressing uh, his his opinion on this. He was not even there. And um, okay, I I I think in my book you can read uh, 40 pages uh, about this scandal, and I was there. And um, the good thing is I made notes in all my wow. diaries in my schedules. You cannot imagine. When I started writing the book, uh, um, it's let's say my 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 um, my memory on all this, yeah, uh, not only on on Elista and and the Topalov match, but from all uh, concerning all what happened in the 90s and even 10 or 15 years ago, was sometimes completely different from <clears throat> from the facts, yeah. And so we we tend to to change a bit our memories, yeah. Uh, and uh, okay, so I was checking all my diaries, my schedules. I bring bring all, let's say, the interviews at that time together of, of what Vladimir said, so that I have it uh, authentic, yeah, in uh, in conjunction with with the moment when the things uh, happened, and not only relying on my my memory, yeah. So this was the, the biggest work on the book uh, to get, um, okay, if, if you write, let's say, such a story of of, uh, of a person and you combine it with, uh, let's say, uh, in this case, chess history, there might be always some inaccuracies and some views which are not um, uh, in accordance with the views of other people. Uh, but you can. Um, uh, um, I, I was I was trying to be as objective as possible. Okay, I was. Krum, I'm Kramnik's manager. I was Kramnik's manager. We're still very very good friends. And uh, but I I wanted to be as objective as possible. And this you can only uh, um, um, try when you go uh, back to this actual situation. And if there are no. Um, no document. If there's no documentation about it, very very difficult. Yeah, because memory is changing all the time. Yeah, they're fickle things, and it's definitely um, good foresight on your part to take so many notes. Yeah, no, I I made it as a, on a regular basis. When I started uh, <clears throat> to manage Leco in '98, I had always my my schedules were big calendars. Yeah, and in the evening of every day, I made some sentences on it yeah and uh, what was very interesting even i <clears throat> i can tell you when i was uh, when i was uh, with him 
uh, driving to the venue in Elista game six or seven, we were talking about champ- uh, uh, a certain Champions League game in in football because Vlad is, is a, really a football fan and follows all this. Uh, and I made a note in the evening, okay, and I could tell you we were talking about the game Moscow versus Hamburg, uh, which uh, Hamburg uh, won one zero to Moscow. Yeah, so uh, these these little things, uh, of course, you would not remember at all after all those years, uh, but um, uh, this shows uh, that this is serious. Yeah, so I, I have all this material. I had this, and this was really worth. Uh, this was really a, a, a big value to me. Yeah, um, I, I'm really looking forward to reading the whole chronology. Um, so one question, and it's quite possible you cover this in the book, um, is you, you, of course, mentioned that you managed both Leco and Kramnik, and they played for the World Championship in 2004. So were you managing them both at that point? Yes. So yes. was that a challenge? Yes, this was the biggest challenge. Uh, you can believe me this. Uh, it was much bigger than Toilet Gate in Elista, um, or other situations. Uh, first of all, when you manage of both um, uh, of both uh, grandmasters, um, which uh, which play for the title, and then you are in this world. You are asked by everyone, okay, whom do you prefer? Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whom? Whom? Uh, first of all, they uh, they assume you are in the in a win-win situation. Uh, I I never saw it like like this because I was always pretty independent on everything so I could live with um, any result and uh, by uh, by now I, I'm, I'm not clear in that question I I, I don't know uh, the the one who was better should win yeah this was this was okay uh, this was really really the case at that time but the most biggest uh, or the biggest challenge was to realize this match at all and it's a big story also in the book because it connects to the situation in the world of chess at that time. Um, okay, we had uh, the Prague Agreement, which is the story uh, itself, and uh, this was, uh, okay, the legitimation to uh, to stage this match, or at least to make it easier, even from, 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 from FIDE. But from this time on, they were fighting you all the time, FIDE, and even Gary, okay, he was cooking his own soup, and... Uh, <laughs> You were you were um, against anybody. Uh, you you stood against anybody in the world of chess. And then to realize uh, such uh, uh, um, such a match with let's say, which um, a budget of of two three four million is always needed for such uh, such big event, and to find somebody even not having um, um, uh, official documents. Now, of course, we all knew. Kramnik is the classical world champion. He defeated the champ. But, okay, official sponsors, they look for something different, and you don't have. So this was really a challenge to get it together. Plus, we had a very weak rights holder. At the time, they were not really active. They were not competent. And, uh, okay, and still you cannot do something because they have the rights. Yeah, um, This was very difficult. And when this match was on, uh, this uh, was the biggest relief in 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 the, in the whole story. Yeah? Um, that uh, Kramnik, uh, when Vladimir is the story of Vladimir, not of Leko. Uh, when Vladimir were, um, uh, were fighting in this match, yeah? 
there was also a different thing. Yeah, uh, he was he was not not in his in his best shape, and this had reasons. And but okay, therefore <laughs> people should read the book because it's pretty exclusive. Uh, what is going on? Um, to what was going on in Switzerland at that time? Yeah, I can't I can't wait to get all of the details. Um, I had a a few more questions. Uh, for you relating to, I mean, you have so many little nuggets that you just sort of, sort of hint at during, um, the excerpt that I read that, that left me wanting more. So you mentioned that you considered the 1990s sort of a, a golden age for, for chess and being that it was a more casual time because computers hadn't totally dominated preparation yet. Yeah. You tell stories of hanging yeah. out with, uh, people like Yusupov and Timon and, and, um, right. players of that stature. Do you have any, uh, particularly memorable stories from that period? Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's good when you start uh, by we, laughing. We, if you have time to talk with me five hours or so, <laughs> I, can, I can talk a lot. No, in general speaking, it is it, uh, it is clear that the computers changed uh, the the world of chess completely, and not only um, concerning the way chess is played nowadays, uh, but also let's say the whole atmosphere changed the whole atmosphere. Um, when it was more family, it was more romantic, if if you want to to say so. Um, people were not uh, analyzing all the time with their best friend, with their notebook, um, uh, some variations. They were talking to each other. Yeah, it was more human. Yeah, this is very clear. We were sitting together during breakfast. All these big guys, even participating and playing against each other. And they had some books with them and some notes. And then before the game, they were briefly checking uh, in which direction they they wanted to play. But that's that that was all. And when the game was over, it was over. And uh, most of the times, uh, they were sitting together, drinking a glass of wine, and and talking uh, about many things, not only necessarily about chess. And um, after the game, they had. Uh, still, there are analyzers, which which is um, uh, there were special analyzing rooms in the venue, and it was very interesting for the journalists uh, to follow all these possibilities, which which they uh, um, uh, could discover uh, post game. And um, okay, all this is missing a little bit, but okay, we have to accept time is changing. If I go to a tournament, last big tournament I saw was in Weikansee in in the Netherlands in the beginning of the year you cannot see the players anymore they are <coughs> they, they finish the game they go to their room they eat dinner in, in, in their room and then they check all the all the variation uh, all the variations for possible variations for the next game and opening scenarios and okay computer are making it possible on one hand of course but on the other hand uh, the human touch is mis- missing a bit, I would say. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a, it's but a dumb... I'm not complaining. It, it, it should be good for something. Yeah. Uh, of course, uh, you need um, you to develop um, uh, um, something. Even chess, uh, you have to go through. Maybe, maybe it, it will change again one day. Uh, when uh, when people come to a completely different approach. Um, because we are not playing computers, we are playing humans, and when they start to understand that they should differ a little bit uh, from all this, and uh, change, uh, chess will even change again, who knows? 
Yeah, and you do see some pictures I've mentioned before. You see uh, reporters like Tarje Svensson. Sometimes he'll um, he'll tweet pictures of uh, like uh, Maxime Vashir Lagrave and Aronian, and there's a couple mm-hmm. others who like to get together and play board games uh, yeah. late at night. So it's not a totally lost art, but I can definitely. I mean, if I were traveling at that time, I would have loved to have just like. You know, yeah. had a but few drinks and watch hand, people you know, analyze. On the other hand, it should be said that many things are much better nowadays. Uh, just for instance, um, uh, they are, uh, how to say, they are not big scandals. They do not uh, do this, all this uh, struggling all the time. Yeah, they, they just, um, uh, they are just friendly to each other. They behave uh, uh, like... Uh, like uh, a real sportsman yeah this is also something uh, which we should not underestimate uh, coming back to all these scandals in the past uh, it might um, might be interesting from time to time for some uh, for some um, general public but if you are involved in such scandals it's not so easy you know it's not uh, it's not so nice yeah uh, because it's also a violation uh, all, all the time uh, of what happened and uh, if these big egos uh, have that kind of approach it's um, uh, it's a different story i i i prefer uh, let's say what in in this field i prefer what they are doing nowadays uh, to behave like sportsmen and to have respect and to be fair um, when they play each other, yeah. So not yeah. all is bad nowadays, of course. Yeah, I mean, speaking of which, you tell the story of meeting Bobby Fischer in in the book. Could you uh, share that story with our listeners? Yeah, it's it's not not uh, very uh, personally. I, I met him on one occasion in Budapest, and um, he was in in Europe. He was um, uh, like a ghost. Nobody knew really where he was, but I knew that Leko was meeting him. Uh, from time to time, he was even guest in Leko's family, so I knew he was in Hungary. And uh, one day, when Leko played uh, played the match in in 2000, I, I remember 2000 against Khalifman, um, uh, somebody called me and uh, offered me the possibility to meet to meet Bobby. And I did in in Budapest in a cafe, and I had one or two sentences with him. But he was um, very shy, and he was not convinced that I uh, that I was really the manager of Leko at that time. Uh, he w- he was afraid that I was somebody else, yeah, like a CIA agent or whatever. So it was not uh, so easy with him. But um, okay, he was living in in his own world, and he might have some reasons to be very careful. I don't know, but um, uh, it it was it was a bit strange. It was a very very short meeting, and. Um, uh, that that it was. Yeah. Uh, later on, I there was a um, there was a proposal one day that Kramnik should play against uh, Fischer in a, in a Fischer random match. Uh, this story is also in the book. Um, we did not meet him. Vladimir always wanted to meet him, even in his last years. He wanted always to go to Reykjavik, but something was. Um, Something uh, happened always, so he could not realize. And okay, in in in, in January 2008, Bobby was was dying, and all the possibilities were gone. Yeah. So um, there there are some little stories uh, concerning uh, Bobby Fischer in the book, of course, because uh, uh, when I wrote the book, I um, I was um, uh, always thinking, what is the connection uh, of Vladimir's story to the chess history? Yeah. And just for instance, when he was born. In 75, um, 
there was a match uh, intended in Manila. Yeah, this was the match uh, uh, Karpov uh, versus uh, Fischer, and okay, it did not it did not happen. But this was the year Vladimir was born, so I was trying to connect all these things a little bit and to uh, to have this uh, chess history included. And in the end of the book, in the appendix, uh, Vladimir speaks about his colleagues, about all the world champions a little bit, giving some hints to their style and uh, his opinions for their um, concerning their contribution for the for the uh, for the chess development. Yeah. Yeah, the the 1975 uh, Karpov Fisher match, one of the one of the great what ifs in chess history. Yeah, possibly. So um, okay, Vladimir is uh, still the opinion that Fisher would have been uh, the clear favorite, but he also told uh, uh, that he was a lonely wolf at that time. And okay, uh, Karpov was full of energy. He was young. And um, to do something in the openings, uh, this would have been his only chance, so to say. But he considered Fischer um, to be the favorite. Um, he, he, he told uh, in, in that interview, he told once uh, uh, he had a certain moment where nobody could do anything against him. But this moment, uh, almost every world champion has once uh, once in his career. Uh, a certain period when they are so strong that they are really dominating. And okay, Vladimir might have had this problem, uh, this uh, his um, uh, this form uh, against uh, Gary, and on certain occasions he was of course uh, able to deliver his very best chess even under tremendous pressure. When you just think about uh, the 14th game against Lake or this tiebreak against Topalov. Uh, but uh, Fischer, of course, he was a coloss yeah, in this. Yeah, yeah, he was a tank. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And one other story I wanted to draw out of you was you talk about meeting legendary Argentinian uh, GM Miguel Nydorf. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Miguel Nydorf, I met in ninety ninety six in Buenos Aires. No, no, not uh, not in Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires, uh, I did not meet him. I met him in Yerevan, in Armenia. During the Olympiad '96, okay, this was the occasion when we were speaking. Let's say one hour in a cafe. He was a very nice, uh, uh, nice man who had to tell a lot of stories uh, uh, from the old uh, chess world, from the very romantic uh, yeah. times. Yeah, and I remember um, Vasily Ivanchuk was uh, was sharing this meeting, and we had some we had some fun. Um, he was trying to um, to convince uh, uh, Nidorf, um, uh in in his own variation and in his own opening systems uh, for new ideas, but Nidorf was not very interested. Yeah, he was <laughs> he was more busy with his meal. Yeah, it was uh, was quite funny. That's funny. Yeah, I mean Nidorf would have been uh, sixty five or so at that point. So. Um, no, I think he was more than eighty already. No? Oh, really? I, I, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think he was. He was quite, 
quite aged, so more than 80. I don't know exactly. He died um, some years later, and I was very happy to, to, have, to have the possibility to meet him during my years in professional chess, as well as I did with uh, Bodvinik and Smyslov, and uh, this is something, uh, okay, or, or even with Bobby Fischer, even if, if it was only a handshake or two sentences, um, you, you, uh, when, when you are so busy, uh, as I was, uh, then, of course, you, you do not think about now. Now I know that this was very, very special, and I try to express it in, in my book. Uh, yeah, and, and I can't wait to get all the details. And I just have one or two more questions. And um, one is, I, I wanted to read you a quote that you wrote about Vladimir Kramnik, because a, a lot of our listeners, we, you know, we're huge fans of chess, but we'll never, we'll never have the access and get to know the personalities of these people. So you write, the way that Vladimir Kramnik plays chess is how he conducts himself away from the board, sometimes chaotic, sometimes emotional, sometimes brilliant, but consistently authentic. Uh, so I, I was just curious if you could elaborate on that. Like, uh, is he um, is he present when you have a conversation with him or is he more one of these uh, these geniuses who's always uh, the wheels are always spinning a little quicker no. than the conversation? No, no, no. Vladimir, first of all, he has many, many interests. As I told you, I, he likes football. He, he could have been himself, maybe even a professional football player. He was very, very good in in uh, in defense yeah uh, and uh, he's uh, interested in many things yeah in arts and i don't know he has a lot of a lot of hobbies and 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 interests uh, no he's not uh, he's not like some players which are always thinking okay uh, it sometimes he expressed uh, it's a problem for him when he really is involved in something let's say if he prepares the world championship or like okay then it starts uh, to cover uh, everything a bit, yeah. But he was always, um, uh, he was always, uh, he had a different approach. He was not not married with chess, 24 hours. This is this is clear. But uh, well, he is um, he has a uh, he has a certain uh, approach. He believes that uh, that uh, chess and the style express expresses the character of of a person, yeah. Um, he is, um, uh, he is, uh, let's say, he is somebody who plays active uh, positional chess, and he has a brand mark uh, on on this. And he, even in the book, he describes uh, other big players, and um, is making, let's say, some examples so that everybody can understand uh, what he means in this. So he has, uh, he has a certain approach, and he sees chess in a certain way. Uh, but he's not uh, he's not 24 hours a day busy with chess he has two children he has a wife they are all living in switzerland and i know sometimes nowadays when he plays chess uh, his biggest problem is uh, that uh, okay that he is away from the family yeah yeah i i can definitely relate to that and i'm sure many of and our... this is the, and this is a, a big point yeah because if you do devote yourself uh, um, uh, to to chess 100 percent, then of course you might be even stronger. But you miss uh, uh, many things uh, on on, uh, on on the other hand. Um, but that he okay brings it all together with two little children and uh, and uh, and a nice wife and traveling and playing chess. Still top ten player in his age. This already shows something. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of his other interests, uh, I, you also mentioned in the book, and I don't know how much you can say about this, but you mentioned that he'd had, he'd had other offers to sort of, uh, 
move away from a career as a chess professional. Are you able to say any more about? No, when when I was uh, when I was uh, his manager, he had a lot of um, a lot of sponsors, uh, a lot of contacts to sponsors. Yeah, he was um, he was engaged by um, celebrity speakers. And whenever he he did this business, um, of course, people were focusing on on this guy. He could be a fantastic ambassador to their company. And uh, uh, he had, of course, or still has these possibilities. But, uh, okay, Uh, Vlad is also, let's say, a pure chess player in in one. He loves chess. And in, in my, really, in my opinion, as long as he loves chess and if he does, if this does not take too much energy from him and if he, uh, let's say, can compete with dignity. This is what is very important because he is somebody for, I, I don't think it is so nice uh, if you are once uh, the number, if you, <clears throat> if, if a Kramnik would be once number, number 500 in the world. Um, I, I think the, if he can play with a certain dignity in, on a certain level and if he if he uh, if he proceed like this, I would love to see him playing chess because, from my point of view, this is what he can do best. Yeah, from all the possibilities him he has, of course he has. Uh, just for instance, I also think he would be a fantastic representative uh, of um, of FIDE or even of a commercial arm of FIDE because he has a personality like Vichy Anand and some people who really can do something. Yeah in this uh, but okay as long as these guys like to play chess they should play because this is what they really can yeah yeah i mean it's hard to be that special at more than one thing and i obviously he's still creating beauty on the chessboard so i i agree that i i hope he sticks with <laughs> i hope yeah, he sticks it's, with it's it not, it's also not easy to say when i was in berlin when he was <laughs> playing the candidates tournament uh, everybody was praising him uh, for his innovative and crazy chess yeah, um, but okay, he he, um, uh, he still wants to win. He doesn't want to be number five in the candidates uh, tournament. Yeah, he wants to win it. Or uh, this a little bit contradicts. Of course, he's uh, he's doing what he wants in chess, but sometimes, of course, uh, uh, when he plays such a competition, he also wants to have a good result. Uh, to my taste, it was good. Uh, to his taste, I don't think he was very happy with uh, being. Uh, or we, I think he was he was fifth in in this in this candidates tournament in Berlin. Um, and just to say, he plays uh, for the pleasure of all the chess fans. Um, uh, he did this, but um, I, I I I would wish that he would win such event once once more yeah because he plays also a little bit for for this nowadays and uh, he he is able to do uh, but in berlin unfortunately he was not and there are not so many opportunities anymore than he had them in the past yeah and taking chances as he did in the game does make for some entertaining yeah, chess. I remember this game against Caruana yeah <clears throat> I think he was clearly winning and then losing track and uh, uh, this is, uh, was a key game in this tournament winning this game um, could have made a, a completely different story in in, in Berlin and okay uh, this is of course something when you're becoming older and know that the energy is going down and that the opportunities are not that much in the future um, then uh, the pressure is coming. But uh, I, I saw even after the tournament, he likes to talk about chess. He likes to uh, to play. And okay, now he played, I think, in Isle of Man, a decent 
very, very good open with an almost 2,800 performance. So he's still a fantastic and great player. And if he likes to do this, he should do. Yes, for sure. And I can't wait to read even more details about this uh, fascinating genius of chess. Uh, my last question for you, Karsten, is um, I don't know if you have any favorite chess books or books about uh, your career as a manager and organizer, but I do always ask my, my guests for book recommendations of any sort. Yeah. Yeah, okay, but uh, this is difficult for me. First of all, I don't know um, the, the the title of the book in English. This was a, a book uh, from Harald Schoenberg, 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 from New York. Um, he, he published this book in the 70s, um, and uh, the German title was... Uh, Die Großmeister der Schach, the Grandmasters of Chess. But I think in, in English it's a bit different, this style. It is something like the Kings of Chess. This, this book, um, um, uh, independent from the TV shows uh, here in Germany connected to the Fischer-Spassky match in 72, this book really brought me to chess. And I know there are a lot of inaccuracies in this book, and the history of this book uh, ends with the with the Fischer-Spassky match. But this fascinated me much. Yeah, yeah. This is a very old book, and you cannot uh, even uh, maybe maybe you can you can still buy it. I don't know exactly, but this I would recommend for everybody who wants to read something about chess history because the Stalin. Um, it's, it's just fantastic. It, it takes you in, yeah. And um, um, uh, nowadays, let's say I'm not re- reading um, uh, real chess books, but what I can recommend uh, are the, the books of Arthur Yusupov. Uh, he has a certain uh, learning system, and uh, even um, me, which was let's say a, a 1,300-400 player, it, player, it was possible. To um, to improve my chest to one six hundred to one thousand eight hundred within one year. Yeah, uh, it's a series. I do not remember the name, but everybody can check out. It is Arthur Yusupov's education book. Yeah, it starts with beginners up to professionals. This series is just fantastic. It's even I think recommended by Fido. One good thing they did in the past. Yeah, we've. Uh, I, as I mentioned, I get recommendations from guests every week, and uh, Yusupov's books have come up quite often. So I'll put a link to those uh, in the show description. Of course, I'll also put a link to your book, and we'll try to track down the title of the Harold Schoenbeck book to which you refer. I have a feeling uh, that if you, I, you, you know, you know the author. Hmm? Well, I know the name, but I can't. Oh, okay. I I was trying to find a. Um, a uh, reference to it online just briefly and I wasn't able to but we'll keep digging and if, I bet if I can't one of our listeners will and then it'll make its way to the show notes so uh, a final question for you Karsten I don't know if you prefer to keep a low profile or if people who enjoy this interview wanted to reach you would be able to but do you have any sort of social media or email address that you'd like to share or would you rather keep that private yeah you can publish my, my email address that's not a problem Okay, and I have it. So I'll just go ahead and put that in the show notes for anyone interested. And I just want to thank you so much for your time and for taking the time to write this book. I, I can't express how excited I am to read it. And obviously, the timing is great with the yeah, World the Championship upon us. Three translators in, uh, in quality chess, uh, they did a real good job. It was sold in, in Germany very, very well. It was, uh, let's say, one of the 
uh, one of the best sellers in, in Russian biographies and of course in chess books for three or four months. So in Germany the, the editors are very, very happy and then Quality Chess was doing a real good business from what I could see. They were, were working with three guys on the translation. It's not easy to meet the style, yeah, if, if a book is translated, but from what I really can can see and judge, they, they did a good job, and I can recommend. Excellent. Yeah. Okay, and the book may or may not be out when this interview comes out, but listeners, keep an eye out. It's coming very soon to Quality Chess and their app and all of that stuff. So, Okay, so thanks again, Karsten. I really appreciate it. Thanks for, thanks for sharing your stories and experience. Yeah, thank you very much, Ben. Wish you well. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. That includes my esteemed producer, Matthew Passy, and Geert Vandervelt for supplying the intro music and everyone who's put in a good word for the show, whether it be on a podcast platform like Apple Podcasts or telling a friend or anything like that. As you guys know, I spend a lot of time on the show, probably about five hours a week between the research and the booking guests and the social media and the actual interview. I love doing it, but it can be hard to find the time. Which brings me to the financial support. I want to give special thanks to those who contribute to the show. Extra special thanks to Chessable.com for their generous support. And I also want to thank, as always, my Patreon and PayPal perpetual partners. You are Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adam Vrancourge, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Ali Morchetti, Andres Quizdwa, Brian Mullis, Carl Labans, I am Carlos Perdomo of ChessAtlanta.com, Bill Moran, Chad Hilton, Chad Oliver, Chris Balcom, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Shabri, Chris Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas, Daniel Naylor, Daniel D. Schaefer, Daniel Vine, David Cramley, CEO of Chessable.com, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, I am elect Donnie Ariel, Frank Tortoris, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, I am Greg Shahadi, Harish Srinivasan, GM Jakob Augard of Quality Chess Publishing, James Bonastia, Jason Willem, Jennifer Valens of OffTheRook.com, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, John Hartman, John Jernigan, WGM Jen Shahadi, Jen Scream, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, Johnny McMenamin, WGM Katerina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovyutsky, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Laura Belyovsky, Leo Delgado, Lorraine Doré, Lucio Casada Silva, Matthew Passi, Macaulay Peterson, Martin Habish, Matthew Tedesco, Nate Salen, Nathan Webster, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passi Passanen, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grahava, Rob Lazorchak, Robert Steiner, Ryan Berg, Ryan Sohn, Steiner Lima, Stuart Katz, WGM Tatia of Abrahamian, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tchenko, Tim Brennan, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Vrinkulj, Zhao Cheng, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks a lot, everyone. Catch you guys next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.